you guys. Just really glad to minister to you this morning. Um, I want to encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. It is amazing to me how aggressive God is. I know I'm using that word a lot today, but I'm just overwhelmed with God and how aggressive he is. I mean, God is just bold, right? I appreciate John Bailey uh, talking to us about Jesus, how he's the, how he's the lion and he's the lamb. And sometimes you just see him as the lion because he's just not afraid to come and get up in our life and talk to us and tell us his intentions. And he really has told us his intentions today. Um, these guys don't know what was in my heart to preach. And so some of the words that went forth from Evan and Christy and Tanya, I mean, Michelle, it is just exactly what God has put in my heart. And I think we're going to be able to see this in Hebrews chapter 2. The title of this message this morning is, He is with us. He is with us. And um, as I've been doing in Sunday mornings a lot, I wanted to read something to you about God and not so much that it has to do with the message, but it just has to do with God. And my concern is the fact that there's a lack of worship of God in the world today. Not a lack of worship, but a lack of worshiping God. Um, Romans 1 says that they will change the image of the uncorruptible God into an image of corruption, like man and beast and so forth. That we will change the truth of God into a lie and that we will not even like to think of God. We don't even like to have him in our minds because we want to go do what we want to do, right? And we don't want God to interfere until we're sick or we're in trouble or we're in a bind. Then we cry out to God, oh, help us, you know. And so we get into those problems because we're not worshiping God. Said, and, and Romans 1 tells us that very clearly, you know, that we worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. Therefore, he handed us over to a reprobate mind, to do things that are not convenient. And guys, we live in that world. Confusion is everywhere. And I believe that the restoration of that is to really worship God for who he is, the uncorruptible God, the holy God, the eternal God. He's infinite and massive in everything about his being. And so I just wanted to share this with you about God, his infinite presence. God is infinite. This means that his being knows no limits. Therefore, there can be no limit to his presence. He is omnipresent. In his infinitude, he surrounds the finite creation and contains it. There is no place beyond him for anything to be. God is our environment as the sea is to the fish and the air is to the birds. God is over all things, under all things. Outside all things, within but not enclosed, without but not excluded, above but not raised up, below but not depressed, holy above, presiding, holy beneath, sustaining, holy within, filling. This is God. Everything exists because of him, by him, through him, and for him. I was uh, given a book. I don't know when, many, many months ago, and I'm given a lot of material to read, and I don't always get the opportunity to just sit down and read something, and it grabs my attention, and I'm able to stay with it because of the, the demands that are upon me. But I was given a book recently, uh, a few months ago, and I just be began reading it, and I really couldn't let it go. It affected me, and there's been several books over the years that has done that, and this was a book written by Dane Ortland, and it was called gentle and lowly. It's about the heart of Jesus. And so I was reading through that book and I was just really moved by his ability to articulate things primarily out of Matthew 11 and Hebrews regarding Jesus Christ and his heart. 
And so I, I just want you to consider that. I want to attribute some of these things to him. The world is spiritual. It originated in spirit, flows out of spirit, is spiritual in essence, and is meaningless apart from the spirit that inhabits it. God is present, near, next to, and this God sees and knows all things through and through. God has never learned. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment? Who taught God knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? God cannot learn. Could God at any time or in any manner receive into his mind knowledge that he did not possess and had not possessed from eternity? He would be imperfect in less than himself. To think of a God who must sit at the feet of a teacher, even though that teacher be an archangel or a seraph, is to think of someone other than the most high God, the maker of heaven and earth. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, feigneth not, neither is weary. There's no limit. There's no searching to his understanding. God perfectly knows himself and being the source and the author of all things, it follows that he knows all that can be known. And this he knows instantly. And with a fullness of perfection that includes every possible item of knowledge concerning everything that exists or could have existed anywhere in the universe at any time in the past or that may exist in the centuries or ages yet unborn. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, hell, God knows it all. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing. But all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised. He is never amazed. He never wonders about anything. Nor except when drawing men out for their own good. Does he seek information or ask questions. God is self-existent and self-contained. And knows what no creature could ever know. Himself. Perfectly. The infinite can know the infinite. And to those of us who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us in the gospel, how unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our heavenly Father knows us completely. No talebearer, no gossip, no slanderer can go to him and inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light 
to turn God away from us. Since he knew us utterly before we knew him. And called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. Though the mountains shall depart and the hills shall be removed. God says, my kindness shall not depart from you. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed. Saith the Lord that has mercy upon you. Our father in heaven knows our frame and remembers that we are but dust. He knew our inborn treachery. The magnitude of our rebellions and the callousness of our hearts. And for his own sake, he engaged to save us. His only begotten son, when he walked among us, felt our pains and their naked intensity of anguish. His knowledge of our afflictions and adversities is more than theoretic. It is personal. It is warm. And it is compassionate. Whatever may befall us, God knows. And God cares as no one else can. And I pray that you will know this about God. May the Lord be worshipped as this God of infinite presence and power and knowledge to whom we are accountable. And he is not accountable to us. And one day with all of our What we think to be great questions. I can't wait to ask God when I see him. I imagine you will fall like Job. With your hand over your mouth asking for mercy. From a God you cannot even begin to wrap your mind around. And I thank God that he's that. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about Jesus becoming a man. God omnipresent, infinite in wisdom and everything becoming man. And I just want to take the time to read through this from chapter 2, verses 9 through 18. Please stay with me. But we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. And that's why Jesus came, to suffer in the battle with death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Jesus tasted your death. We, we read that in the King James. And I think we understand miss, or don't get some of the significance of that. But he took it in. And he defeated it soundly. Every man's death. He took it in and he defeated it soundly. He didn't just scrape by. And come up with a just in the moment when he beat it from the day of his birth to the day of his ascension and every day following. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory. How many of you want Jesus to make you a son or a daughter that he brings into glory? The beginning of that was the fact that he would become a man and be willing to suffer at the hands of death so that he could beat it for you and be the captain of their salvation and make them perfect through sufferings. Now listen to this. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. We're one. We're one with Jesus. The one who sanctifies us and those who are sanctified in him are one. 
As a man joins himself to a woman and the two become one flesh, so through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith in the work of the cross, God joins us to Jesus Christ and the one who is sanctifying me is one with me and I am one with him. We are inseparable. Not even death now can come into the equation. He's able to save to the uttermost those that come to God by him or through him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. Ever lives. This is the testimony of Jesus. This is, this is the Lord. And so those that are sanctified and those, the one who sanctifies them are all one. For which cause, now notice this at the end of verse 11. He is not ashamed. He is not embarrassed. He does not hide himself. He does not close his eyes. He does not turn away in disgust. He is not ashamed to call you his brother. And he knows every single thing about you. You're ashamed of yourself. If people knew you like you knew yourself, if people could see the hidden things about you, then everybody in this room would be ashamed of you except one person who would rise up and claim you as his own. And that is Jesus Christ. With all of the ugly, all of the dark, all of the corruption, when everybody's turning their backs on you, Jesus would stand up and say, you're mine. And I'm not ashamed to call you that. Our value, the value of our life. I've heard people say this so many times, you know, that God saved us. We must have value for God to come and save us. You know what our value is? It was not the value of our pre-life before Christ. The value of our life is not something intrinsically that we were, that God would be able to salvage. The value of our life is what God foreknowing he could do through his grace The value of our life is the transformation of grace. It's what God, through Jesus Christ, is going to do to us and through us for all of eternity. And angels in heaven and earth and beings in hell are going to exclaim to the glory of God how powerful Jesus Christ is. How worthy Jesus Christ is. It's the value of his grace. It's the value of his blood. It's the value of Jesus Christ. And so he's not ashamed to call us brothers. I, I just, I pray that that sinks into you. Saying, I will declare your name. Speaking of his father, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the midst of the church will I sing praise to you. And I, I just want to say to you, you know, you see church services and people have their religious traditions. And, and, and according to this scripture, if this were church right here and Jesus were physically present, you know where he'd be? In the midst Singing praise to God. Declaring God's name to us. And that's, that's his desire. He's, he loves his father so much. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. We're going to come to that at the end. The children which God has given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood... He also himself likewise took part of the same. He became a human that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things... It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He suffered 
He battled death. He knows our frame. He's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers, even though he knows us so intimately and perfectly. All of these happened so that he could be like unto us without sin and be a merciful. How many of you are grateful for mercy and faithful high priest? The faithfulness of Jesus's ministry is not contingent upon the faithfulness of your life. It is contingent and only upon the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and his blood that speaks on behalf of us at the mercy seat of God in heaven to the Father. And it is through that Jesus alone that he's able to continue to be faithful to us. And Thessalonians says that even when we're not faithful, he remains faithful. Praise God. But he's a high priest in the things pertaining to God and he makes, he reconciles for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to secure or comfort or console and strengthen and empower those that are tempted. Or another word for the secure is to relieve, to relieve you of the temptation. Many times you hear this, you know, we're not tempted above what we're able to bear, but God is able to make a way of escape and in the moment of that temptation. Well, the way of escape is Jesus Christ. That's, he is always the way of escape. He is always the answer. And this is a real person. This is a real living person right now that should have such an intimate effect upon your innermost being, your heart and your life and everything that is going on with you. And so... For Jesus to be a faithful high priest, he has to identify with us. He has to be our brother. He cannot be ashamed of us. He cannot go and represent us before his father with us struggling with with sins or struggling with corruptions or struggling with calloused hearts or struggling with cold love or struggling with bitterness or unforgiveness. And Jesus is ashamed to bring us before his father. He's not. And for him to be that faithful high priest, he has to be joined to us in that way. Understanding, I understand you. Because he's God become man. And he's suffered and he has been afflicted and he is with us. He could be anywhere, but he's with us. He's everywhere, but he's with us. He's not rooting for us. He's with us. He's not leading us. He's carrying us. He's not coaching us. He's gracing us. You understand that? Because a lot of people in their idea of God, their idea of Jesus Christ is like, I've been given a new start by the Lord and and now I'm going to have all of this help and all of this encouragement from God and from the Holy Spirit, you know, and he's going to do all of these things for me. And, and they live their Christian life like that as, as though this were me. And, and, and he's laid me there. He's like, now say, now you get up and you say your prayers and you read your Bible and you go to church. And if you sin, you confess them and give your tithes and give your offerings and walk in faith with me. And, 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 and that's, that would be the coaching of me trying to coach this coat to, to live a life. But that's, that's not what he does. He graces us and to grace us is to put us on he wears us and it is his life inside of the coat it is his power inside of the coat that helps us move and helps us live and helps us go about life he's with me for god's sake he's with me 
And if Jesus were not with me, I'd have no hope. I'd have no ability. Some of you can't tithe because he's not gracing you. And he's not gracing you because you won't let him. You listen more to the voices of inflation than you do God. You're more involved in politics than you are in the intimacy of the inner chamber of God in his presence. There is a life to this that the world has got to see now. They've got to see that there's a people on this earth whose God is with them. Our God is with us. That can't be theology. It's got to become skin. They've got to see it. They've got to understand it. When you see Jesus in the Gospels, you see Jesus in heaven. When you see Jesus then, then you see Jesus now. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When you read in the Bible how Jesus treated women and how Jesus treated babies and how Jesus treated children and how Jesus treated prostitutes and how Jesus treated the cripple and the lame and the sick and, and the oppressed, that is the same way he treats them today. And, and, and beloved, I'll tell you this, there's not one place in the Bible when any sinner, any person with a need came to Jesus Christ and found him calloused or rude or mean. But they found the ability to stir up his heart. And even when a Gentile woman came to Jesus, his compassions were stirred up toward her because of her faith. And he ministered to her. It's interesting, as was stated in the book, Gentle and Lowly, that of all of the gospels and all of the many verses, and I'm going to Matthew 11, you can turn there with me. That of all of the Gospels and all of the verses that are in the Gospels, there is only one place where Jesus reveals his own heart. And he reveals what it's like. It would be worth reading this with me. Because there's something else in this passage that I want you to see in regards to his call. It's in verse 28 of Hebrews 11. Matthew, I'm sorry. Thank you. Just see, you paying attention. I love you. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what is brought out in this particular passage is Jesus says of his own heart in verse 29, I am meek and lowly, or I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's the way my heart, Jesus is saying, this is my heart. It's gentle and it's lowly. There's not one of you that can get so low that I cannot get lower still and lift you up is what Jesus is saying. And notice who it is that Jesus calls to him. Those that are weary. And many of you here this morning are weary. You're trying to juggle so many things. You're trying to accomplish so many things. And you're exhausted and you're worn out. You're fighting your sin. You're fighting your besetting sins. We had a word this morning about somebody that might be about to give up on their marriage. You're weary. And heavy laden is just to be loaded down with all types of weights on your life. Expectations, responsibilities, failures, sins, skeletons in the closet. It just keeps adding, adding up, adding up, adding up. And we're so weighted down. Jesus, these are the people that Jesus is calling to him. 
not the mighty, not the great, not those that have it all together, not those that have figured it out, but those that haven't. Those that have come to the point in life where you can't cope anymore and now you need drugs. You need intervention. You need help because I'm losing it. Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest. But I want you to understand this because many people in the church world today are kind of like King Saul in the past. And they like to visit God and they like for David to come in and play his worship and chase the demons out of my life and just let me have a few breaths to take and a little bit of rest because when David would worship God and the presence of God would come, the demons and Saul would, would flee and Saul would have rest for a moment until David stopped and he left Saul all alone and the demons came back. And that's the way a lot of people are in church. Okay, I'm going to go to church today. Preacher's going to preach. A few words of knowledge that are going to come out. There's hope in God. God loves me. We're not forsaken. God is with me. God wants to heal me. God wants to be my victory. God is with me. This is supposed to change my life. Yay, yay, yay. Good God. That's good. That's what I really want in my life. And okay, I'll see you Wednesday night. Is that what he said in Matthew 11? No, he's talking about taking a yoke upon you, joining yourself to him. You don't visit him on Sunday morning and then leave him until Wednesday or some other day. You're, you're yoking yourself to Jesus and that's when the rest comes to your life. And that rest of Jesus, that, that great ministry of the high priest really comes into your life. So I want to compare this, if you will, to Hebrews chapter four. And I mean Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, and it's going to be verse 7, and if you will, would you read with me through the end of the chapter? Many of you love the Bible. This is a day of churches with not much Bibles, but I'm glad you have yours. I can hear the pages turning. You should check everything anybody ever says to you. Hebrews 4, 7, again, he limits a certain day or makes holy a certain day, saying in David today, after so long time as it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And that's my, that's my desire for you. But how could any of us ignore what was said this morning through prophecy? Would you hear his voice? Would you not harden your heart? For if Jesus, speaking of Joshua of the Old Testament, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remains therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, when I read that, I'm just like, ouch, right? That's conviction. That is, that is great conviction. Do y'all know preaching is painful? 
we were, I was with Richard and Russell and Jason. We were playing golf a couple of weeks ago, and I don't remember what happened, but I said something, and Russell said, truth is painful, isn't it, Pastor? And I, yeah, it is. I think it's supposed to be. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> it's just a painful thing. And when you're preaching truth, it can be painful. Therefore, Jesus wants you to come to him. He doesn't want you to just listen to preaching. He doesn't want you to just listen to the word of God. He expects you to have a Pentecostal responsiveness to him. That causes you to come and not harden your heart. Because that's what we do. We harden our hearts. How do we harden our hearts? We justify ourselves. We say, I don't need to do that. I don't need to go there. I don't need to come. I can do this right here. I can do this right now. I'll do it in my own time. I'm Cain. I'm giving God what I want, and he should be happy with it. And, and that's what we do. And in all of this pain, the preaching of God's word, the preaching of God's truth can make you greatly ashamed. I mean, read this, guys, right? I mean, look at verses 12 and 13. There's nothing hidden that's not exposed. The preacher doesn't even preach on your sin, but you think that's all he talks about is your sin. The word of God opens up you. It exposes you to God. Cause you to become very ashamed. Sinners hate this. People hate to be in church like this. People hate to sit under that kind of preaching of the word of God or of truth. We would rather go to a place that's more palatable. Maybe tell me a story. You know, give me a good nudge in the right direction. Make me feel good about myself. But wait a minute. No, the word of God, if it goes forth, it's going to pierce you. It's sharp. It's going to separate soul and spirit. It's going to discern your thoughts. It's going to lay you open before God. It's painful. It's difficult. And in all of this, what does Jesus Christ want you to know from chapter 2? Whatever is exposed in your life. I'm not ashamed of you. Whatever comes out through the preaching of God's word, whatever comes out through the word of God that exposes you and you see something in yourself that you're so ashamed of and you want to run for cover. I'm not ashamed of you. And if you have to run anywhere, run to me. Run to me. And that's what he wants us to do. And so he tells us this, if we can continue... In verse 14, now he talks about the word being sharp, sharp and powerful and piercing and exposing and everything else. It's light. So what, what do we do after the word of God? Verse 14, see and then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. If you don't have feelings. Something's wrong with you. If you don't have spiritual feelings. Something's wrong with you. Without those feelings. You're not touching Jesus. He is touched. With the feeling. Of our infirmities. But was in all points. Tempted like as we are. Yet without sin. Let us. Therefore, because the word of God has exposed you, it's pierced you, it's cut you, it's exposed you, it's laid you open. You got to know that you have a great high priest who knows every single thing about you and he's not ashamed of you. He's touched with the feeling of your infirmities. 
And because of this, he extends to you a very gracious invitation. Come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What's the time of need? When the word of God's just showing you the truth about yourself. I need help. I need God. I need to come to Jesus. I need to be there with the Lord. So if I can, and I might turn to a couple of other scriptures before we conclude. Well, I will do this. Look at Hebrews 5. And he tells us this about high priest. Everyone that is taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. That he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Excuse me. Who can have compassion on the ignorant. And on them that are out of the way. For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. God creates high priests and ordains them. God, by the order of Melchizedek, thank you, made an ordination of his son Jesus Christ that you are to be their high priest. You are to be compassionate on them. You are to be the means of reconciliation with the men that I'm bringing to you, the women that I'm bringing to you, and myself. You can't be ashamed of them. You have to make provision for their sins. And you have to keep us together. You have to love them and be compassionate on the wayward. What are the wayward? It's the people that are kind of moving to the edge. And God's saying, don't go there. Don't go there. But we're going there. And we're wayward. We're rebellious. Or the ignorant. Be compassionate on the ignorant. What's the ignorant? It's the very ones that were around the the cross of Jesus when he said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. So Jesus has this compassion upon his people that way. And I want you to understand, I haven't preached in so long, my voice is getting given out. But we got it, all right? I'm not hurting. It's just getting weak. And so I want you to understand this, that Jesus Christ is our compassionate high priest who's not like the ones chosen from among men, but he is the one chosen by God who is without sin, but he's touched by the feelings of your infirmities. So I just want to say to you this morning that Jesus is with you in human suffering. He's with you. When you have been forsaken in a marriage. When you have suffered just the greatest betrayal. When you have undergone the greatest rejection that you could possibly ever face in life. Jesus is with you. Most people like to be with people who are on their way up. On their way to the top. Who are winning. And getting everybody's attention. But Jesus is with you. When you're on your way down. And your friends are forsaking you. And people don't care about you. They don't, they don't even want to hear your story. I don't have time for you. There's nothing you can do to contribute to me. And friends leave. And family leaves. And companions leave. There. 
is Jesus with you. When you're sick and you're suffering and you're diseased ridden and people don't know what to do and you're suffering grief and people don't know what to say, Jesus is with you. Jesus is not attracted to you when you're winning. He's attracted to you when you're losing. He's not attracted to you when you're strong. He's attracted to you when you're weak. He's not attracted to you when you feel like you've got most of it all together. He's attracted to you when you've lost everything and you have no hope. He's there. And maybe some of us get that. But we say, well, in sin, oh, if I sin, he can't be there. He can't be there if I sin, if I transgress, if I purposely rebel against God and do something that I want to do. He can't be there then. I mean, certainly Jesus has to turn himself around at that point. He can't be with me in that. No, even then he's there. And I know what some of you are thinking. If he's with me. When I'm suffering, when I'm sick, when I'm hurting, when I'm rejected, when I'm not understood, when I've been abused and I've been molested, all of these things that happen to me, and you're telling me he's there and he's touched with the feeling of my infirmities? Yeah. And I know your question. Your question is this, then why don't I know it? Why doesn't he help me? I'll tell you why. I'm glad you asked. It's because of Hebrews 4, you don't come. You keep your distance. You get close enough to hope, but you don't get close enough to be healed. So you carry your pain and your inflictions and your piercings with you. And like a lot of atheists and agnostics, we go out there and we blame God for not loving us. When he was there the whole time. And when we sin. He's there the whole time. I'll kind of bring this to a conclusion. If you will turn with me to John. Chapter 6. I want to bring something to you. We alluded to this in Hebrews. But this is where it's taken from. Before we read it, I want to say this to you. In the book of Psalms, one of the greatest men in history was King David. And probably as great as his exploits were for God, so were his sins against God. We could look at Solomon and see judgment against his life and then look at David and say... I mean, in many ways, there's not many differences. And in other ways, there's lots of differences. But David made a statement in his Psalms and he said this. The gentleness of God has made me great. And I've wondered about that. And I believe according to the scriptures, God has shown me. David deserved 
to be crushed. He deserved for his throne to be taken. He allowed his son to rape his daughter and did nothing about it. He deserved that rebellion. David knowingly and willingly put thousand men on the front line to be murdered in a battle. To save himself. And David knew this holy God should come crush me. This holy God should come with ferocious anger and wrath. And wipe me out. But he didn't. He came gently to me. And he healed me. And he restored me. And he made me great. And I say that to you, beloved, wherever you may be in suffering or in sin. Jesus is your high priest. Whose heart is gentle and lowly. And even when you sin and you turn against yourself. Jesus has not turned against you. He's your only hope of restoration. So he said this in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And him that comes to me, I will in no wise, no conditions, no circumstances, cast out. My God. I would cast myself out. But he won't. Oh God, I'm so ashamed. I'm not ashamed of you. You're no different than anybody else. That I have saved. But you got to come to him. And that's the problem with Christians today. You learn about him, but you don't come to him. You want from him, but you will not receive from him. You keep your distance. You do not come. Oh, Jesus, yoke me with you. Put that burden on me so that I can learn of you and know your rest. Let me come to your throne of grace where there can be healing and mercy upon my life. Reading this from the book, Gentle and Lowly. But I am a great sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast you out, says Jesus. But I am an old sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast you out, says Jesus. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast you out, says Jesus. But I am a backsliding sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast you out, says Jesus. But I have served Satan so much of my life, and I am so unworthy. If you come to me, if you just come, I will in no wise cast you out. I have sinned against the light, but if you will come to the light, I will in no wise cast you out. But I have sinned against mercy, but if you come to my mercy, I will in no wise cast you out. But I have no good thing to bring with me. But if you come, I will in no wise cast you out. But if you don't come, 
I will in no wise save you. I will in no wise deliver you. But if you come, I will not fail you. No, wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know. He responds. You know, most of it, Jesus, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside of me that's hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. Well, that's the only kind of person I'm here to help. But Jesus, the burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Well, let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. Oh, Jesus, you don't get it. My offenses aren't directed to others. It's you. I'm offended with you. Then I am the one who is most suited to forgive you. Come. But the more of the ugliness that you discover in me, you will get fed up with me. Whoever comes, I will not cast out. I will not be ashamed of you if you just come. It's not the doctrine of eternal security. It's not the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's the doctrine of the perseverance of the heart of Christ. Because you don't have to come, and in coming you don't have to stay. Galatians teaches us that quite well. But if you come, he will not cast you out. And you are safe. Case closed. He receives you. Will Jesus grow tired of me? No. His arms are everlasting. His power is unfailing. His mercy is without end. He'll never grow tired.